Welcome to Conversations from Here with me, Dana Ziegler. These candid, unfettered talks create connection and inspiration across the human story. These are the sharings of how we came to be ourselves, how we found our life's purpose, and how we made it from there to here. I speak with performers, artists, artisans, creators, innovators, entrepreneurs, and other remarkable people about what they do and how they came to do it. Also, the music you hear on this show is performed, as always, by Brad Watson. In today's episode, I speak with epic guitar wizard, sought-after session player, veteran tour member, master composer, and all-around music industry pro, the Honorable Jay Gore. We talk about growing up in Los Angeles, playing his first pro gig at the legendary Troubadour as a kid, how the music industry has changed from decades past. Playing sessions and touring, making connections, and being prepared to meet the moment, and riding the bus well. So many amazing stories. It's a great time. Hope you enjoy. Here's me and Jay. Okay. Hello there, be- Jay Gore. Hey. Hello there. <laughs> Surrounded by guitars. That doesn't surprise me at all. Yes, this is... Uh... This is my studio, my home studio. Fantastic. I'm, I'm, I'm really happy that you're doing this. You know, you are one of the people uh, that I've been wanting to talk to. So thank you for that. I'm not very easy to talk with. <laughs> well, we'll be, the, we'll be the judge of that. But I, I did want to go back to, um, to your origins. You are that rare bird. You are a native Angelino. I am. <laughs> I am. Tell me a little bit about growing up in LA back in the day. It was so cool. It really was. I, I, uh, I hate to live in the past, but I tend to, I tend to so often because, you know, I'm not one of these people who talks about childhood trauma or gets to be middle-aged and goes to see a shrink and discovers that they have all of these childhood traumas that are affecting, uh, the way they live their lives now as grown-ups and and I think I'm quite the opposite I think that my traumas are adult traumas and and I want to go back to being a kid again I mean I had a great childhood I grew up you know I grew up in the I was a child of the 70s and the 80s and uh it was a wonderful time it was especially in LA with rock music and being on the Sunset Strip and I, I was uh, I was born in a hospital in Hollywood that isn't, doesn't exist anymore. 
Mm-hmm. I grew up in, in West LA and I, West LA was kind of my home. You know, I went, I went to school there and kind of grew up there. And, but from the time I was 13, I was playing gigs at, at the Hollywood clubs, at the Troubadour, the whiskey and places like that. And it's just, it's still, I can't drive past the Troubadour to this day, you know, 35 years later and not flash back in an instance it's it's like when they say your life flashes before your eyes everything from my drummer and great friend craig and i riding our bicycles up there after school to try and get a job a gig there to sitting up in the office by the big troubadour sign looking down on the sidewalk and seeing all of our friends and family coming to the show to being so nervous in the dressing room and, uh, and them not having a toilet in the dressing room and we peed in a trash can in the dressing room. Just all of those things, just it all comes back to me in a flash. Even to this day, it like it hasn't, it's still vivid to me. Uh-huh. And, and you were, oh, sorry, you, you, you were actually picking up a guitar when you were eight, right? It started yeah, really, I, I, my, my, I wanted to play piano, I don't know why. And my father said, I'm not buying an eight-year-old kid a piano so you could quit in six months. So my dad brought me home an acoustic guitar. I would say several weeks later, like it wasn't even a conversation anymore. I didn't bother him about the piano thing. And he brought me home a three quarter size student acoustic guitar, which I still own. It's not, it's not in this room, it's in my storage facility. And uh, I remember, I remember running in, I was watching TV and he, he came over to the house and I remember he came by my mom's house. My parents had split up by then. He came to my mom's house and brought me the guitar. And I remember I grabbed it and I ran into my bedroom. And I remember sitting on my bed and I remember, I remember laying the guitar flat on my lap like this, like, like Jeff Healy, if anybody knows who Jeff Healy is. I laid it flat on my, on my lap and I just started to kind of, just like trying to make noise with it. But the funny thing is that I knew, I knew how to, properly hold the guitar because because my dad played guitar ah that was my next question because who so your dad okay your dad was your dad played guitar anybody my dad's not a guitar player but he plays guitar oh okay there's there is a difference yes absolutely there's a difference so my dad really would just be like you know like the extent of his ability yeah. right um so i knew what it looked like to play guitar but for some reason i just laid that thing flat on my lap like that and i must i must have been in there for hours doing that i started taking lessons at a little music store a mom and pop music store on pico boulevard it's not there anymore down by like pico and veteran it's, mm-hmm. it's like a it's like a state farm office now <laughs> um and I remember sitting, it's the greatest, because it's such a sign of our times, you know? This is the late seventies and I'm sitting in a room, like a, like a, a closet in the back of a, a, of a music store. And the closet couldn't have been more than four feet by four feet. And I'm in this tiny little room with this like rattan, uh, um, 
accordion door that slides open and shut mm -hmm. and it's me and it's my guitar teacher and me and I remember the guy's name was Mark and I remember he had long hair he looked like he was in Molly Hatchet or something like that you know he he wore dark sunglasses and he had like a Fu Manchu mustache and he would just sit there and play his guitar with a cigarette hanging out of his mouth the whole time you know we weren't like <coughs> you know what I mean even though right. we're in this little closet with this guy, chain smoking cigarettes. And, you know, my dad wasn't saying, I like, I got to put a cigarette out with my kid there. It wasn't those times. You know what I right, mean? Right, right. It was, it was America. It's the 70s. Right. So <laughs> I didn't love the guitar. He had me playing, he had me playing stuff. He had me playing like 50s, like uh I remember one of the songs he had me playing was called Seekers. And it was like it. Real stiff like that, you know, it wasn't even. And he would just sit there and I would play like this and he would just sit there and, and, and solo. And uh, it was more like this, it was more like the lessons were done for him than for me. Right, so he could noodle and perfect his technique. Right. I didn't enjoy it at all. I just, I just didn't enjoy it. So about a year later, my father took me, this was 1979, October of 79. My father took me to the forum to see Kiss. The original Kiss. Mm -hmm. Ace, Paul, Gene, and Peter, Dynasty Tour. And I could not believe what I saw. From the moment of that opening bomb going off. Right. And rising up, they rose up out of the stage with smoke everywhere and each enveloped in their own, their own respective color of light. And I mean, and then Ace, seeing Ace Frehley with the guitar that lit up and levitating into the sky and shooting rocket ships up. I, I just, I looked at my dad and I said, you didn't tell me I could do that with the guitar you know so that that was uh that was it for me i became i became super hyper focused so it was kiss that 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 launched your 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 first real real passion when you recognized the possibilities oh my goodness and you know the thing is it took that for some reason it took that that theatrical level and it's funny is because I never, as a player, I never, I never gravitated towards bands other than Kiss that had the theatrical thing like that. Even when I was a kid growing up in bands, even during the eighties in the heyday of hair band, and I was up there playing in hair bands, but I never did the guy liner and I never did the Aquanet. And I had really long hair, really, really long hair. But I never did the Aquanet thing and the guy liner and the spandex. It just it wasn't me, and I and I wouldn't have felt comfortable doing it. Um, but I will say that you know my, my father ran the he, he ran the concession. He was in the restaurant business, uh -huh. and he ran the concession stand at a place in Burbank called called the Starlight Bowl. And I would go there on the weekends with my dad, and I would either sit on the counter in the concession stand and, and work the popcorn machine. You know, like I would dip the popcorn, mm -hmm. uh, you know, with the cups that they put the popcorn in, you know, mm -hmm. and I'd hand them people through the window 
or I'd walk around with my, uh, with my older cousin and he had the, uh, the um, kind of that big tray that had all the sodas in it with the, with the strap that goes around your neck. And I had that little belt, the change belt. Uh-huh. And he hand people their Coke and they'd hand me a dollar and I'd go and I'd hit that little change belt and I'd give them their quarterback. So I got to see amazing stuff. I got to see, I remember seeing James Taylor and Jackson Brown and Bonnie Raitt. I got to see um, Bob Marley. I was a kid. I mean, how many people my age were, were alive to see Bob Marley in concert? I got to see Bob Marley in concert. And I remember, I remember thinking that it was really, it was a different element. You know what I mean? Yeah. It was, it was, I remember asking my dad, what, how come everybody's smoking these funny little cigarettes? <laughs> I remember asking him that. And he said, I think you should stay in here and in, in in, stay in the restaurant tonight and just serve popcorn. Don't go out there anymore. So I, I, I mean, but even then it didn't make me sit there and like stare at Jackson Brown with the guitar or Wadi Watel or whoever was playing with him. Yeah. It didn't have that effect on me until I went a year or two later to see Kiss. Mm-hmm. Maybe because I was younger. And then at 10 years old, seeing Kiss, it made me, it made me go, oh, I had uh, like a comprehension of it. Right. Um, but, but that was, I was still a huge Kiss fan. I mean, I, they played in LA right before the pandemic. And even though it's only two original members, I took my wife because I wanted her to see it. I wanted yeah. her, you know, to experience what a Kiss concert is like. It's, I think everybody should experience that. I mean, these guys took it to the next level. They really did. So it's Gene and who else is the other it's original? Gene Paul. Uh-huh. It's Gene and Paul, and then they have uh, Tommy Thayer on guitar and Eric Singer on bass. Mm-hmm. And I mean, those guys have been with them longer than the original guys were with them. Right. Longer That's than right. Peter and Ace were. But the thing, I think the thing that gets up, that upsets most fans is that they didn't assume their own characters. They took over the cat and the spaceman. Mm. And I think that's what gets, that's what alienates and it alienates them from a lot of their original fans is, you know, I don't mind seeing Tommy. Tommy plays great and Eric plays great, uh-huh. but, uh, but he's there in Ace's makeup. I see. So, so the original fans say that those guys should have their own characters. Right. Because when they first, when they first replaced Ace and Peter, you had other guys that had other characters. Mm-hmm. You did, you know, right. um, <laughs> it's, it's a weird thing. You know, and look, I, from what I hear, Ace, I mean, Gene and Paul, from what I hear now are, they're not going to be doing this much longer. They're in their late sixties now, I think. Yeah. They're going to get new players to, to be their characters. Right. They want Kiss to live forever. They're like a hundred years from now, they're still going to be Kiss. It's still going to be a demon, a lover, or a star man, or, you know, yeah. a, a space guy and a cat. Who knows who those guys are going to be? But it's, it, it, to them, it's like Blue Man Group now. Right, 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 right. You know, it's like Blue right. Man Group or, or you know, traveling, uh, traveling, you know, Beatlemania shows where there's like five of them and there's five different Beatlemanias and you know, to the, I think that's like ultimately what they want. They want, I mean, that's going to be endless revenue for them. Endless. Oh yeah, it's about it's about the shekels. There's not a lot of bands <laughs> from the '70s that are still selling out arenas by you know, themselves. I, 
I ran, I ran into Gene Simmons at the comedy store and he's an absolutely enormous person. Yes, he's very big. Tall. So is yeah, Paul Stanley. Like <laughs> They're all tall, except for, except for Peter Chris. They're all very tall. Uh-huh. Yeah. And then you put those seven inch or eight inch heels on them and they're they're literally that's seven feet tall. The platforms, yeah. Right. And they're jumping around at 60 some odd years old wearing platforms and they're jumping up and doing splits in the air still. You know, it's amazing. We don't have rock stars like that anymore. Right. We just don't, That's it's done. It's done because you had an era of record company participation. You had an era of compartmentalized record company people that were assigned to a band as an A&R person would be assigned to a band to develop that band. It wasn't now like if your first hit doesn't, doesn't make X amount of money or X amount of streams, you're done. No, we're signing you to a five or 10 year deal because we believe that we can turn you into something amazing in that time. And therefore they take half the money or whatever they were taking, which they still do now for doing nothing. Right. But there was so much money back in the day that it was it was a fair exchange. You know, I had I had many years ago, I, I did a, an interview on a cable television show. And the woman that was the host of the show, she was also it was her show. She was the producer and the host mm-hmm. like you. And she said, um, listen, this is a. Uh, it's a conversation. It's not supposed to be um, confrontational. It's not supposed to be divisive. It's just, we have a conversation. And she says, you're, you're my professional musician and I have somebody from MTV and I have somebody from a record company. So they talked, the two of them started talking and talking. It was probably 10 minutes or 15 minutes before I even said a word. So finally the woman says to me, so what do you think? And I said, well, thank you for asking because I have lots of, Lots of strong opinions about what both these guys have said. And I said, especially let's start with the guy from MTV. I said, MTV ruined the music business. It ruined it. It destroyed the music business. And they both laughed at me. And they said, they said, numbers and sales have never been higher than since MTV. I said, ah, you're talking about the business and I'm talking about the music. I said, you only care about the money. I care about the art. I said, what MTV ruined the music business because it turned an auditory art into a visual art. And we don't even care about any balance. It's literally just all we care about is the physical aspect, is, is the visual aspect of this right. art form now. Oh, yeah, they got the right look. Exactly. And he says, no, that's not true. That's not true at all. I said, really? And I looked at the guy from the record company. I said, would you give Steely Dan a record company today, a record contract today? Would you? Would you give Steely Dan a record contract today? Because I can't think of a better band, a more right. musical, talented, brilliant band. Would you give them a record contract today? No, you wouldn't. No. I said, you probably wouldn't give Earth, One, and Fire one either. Right. You probably wouldn't give Duran Duran one. <laughs> you, probably wouldn't give St- you probably wouldn't give Stevie Wonder a record contract nowadays. You just wouldn't. Mm-hmm. Doesn't look good on MTV. Doesn't fit that model. Right. It's all about audit. It's all about how people look. And now with Pro Tools and, you know, and the like, the Logic and the Pro Tools and all the other DAWs we have, mm-hmm. 
any, I mean, I brought my wife in here and I showed her stuff I can do in, in Pro Tools in my studio. She couldn't believe it because I was writing a song and I used a sample of a woman singing and it was in the wrong key. And she goes, it sounds terrible. Why does it sound terrible? I said, because she's singing notes that aren't in the key that I wrote this song in. Mm -hmm. But I broke out auto-tune and I fixed her notes. And she went, oh my God. I said, this is everything you hear on the radio. Right. Now you know why when you listen to the music on the radio and I scream at you, I don't scream at you. But when I say to you, please turn this music off. It's not even music to me. Mm -hmm. It's just computer noise. It's all it is. Right. 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 So we have to play that game. You know, I, I work with a, an amazing pop star right now named Olivia Rocks, and she's unbelievable, man. She's the real deal. You know what I'm saying? Like, she is versatile. She has a range. I don't know how many. It's got to be a five octave range, maybe more. Mm -hmm. and, and her pitch is great. She writes all her own music, plays multiple instruments, and she's 20 or 21, something like that. She's amazing. Mm -hmm. Seriously. The talent is there. This is the best part of the internet that we live in and with the social media now is if you know how to, how to work that system, if you know how to work that TikTok and work that YouTube and all that, you have no need for a record company. I sell my records on my website. I don't have a record company. You want to buy my records? You go to jgore.com and you buy my records and I, don't, and I get to keep my money. Yeah. That's the best part of the business now. Right. Yeah. And then some people would also say that things like Spotify have, have ruined the music industry as well, because there's no, there's not much money in that. Is that right? Well, that is true, except for like, a, like anything in life, there's the one percenters, you know? Sure. Um, so let's put it, let's put it this way. Um, music has no value any longer. Mm -hmm. Okay. A movie, when you go see a movie, it has value. They charge you money for it. They charge you a lot of money. Theater tickets are close to $20 a piece now. Yeah. Okay. So it has a value because if somebody gets caught going into a movie theater and filming that movie and then putting it on the internet, they prosecute those people. Okay, now if you bought a cassette tape in 1980 and I came over to your house and took your cassette tape and had a dual cassette recorder, put a blank cassette and, and made a duplicate of it, that's illegal, but right. nobody prosecuted you for that. Right, we used to do that all the time. Exactly. When you buy a record, you're buying that record for your individual use of that record. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. So when you have a restaurant and you're playing your record that you bought in your restaurant, you're technically not supposed to be doing that. You can play the radio because the radio is commercialized. Right. See what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, there's a restaurant in Hollywood, a Thai restaurant. that's very popular. It's open very late at night. I don't want to say the word, the name, because we all know it. It's open very late at night, but they play movies in there and they turn the sound off and they play music because they got in trouble because they're rebroadcasting a copyrighted movie. Mm, mm. Nobody cared if they were rebroadcasting the music. They only cared that they were rebroadcasting the film. I see. So there's a double standard because the music industry doesn't give a shit. The music industry is very short-sighted. They want the immediate gratification. They don't, they never are looking down the road. Mm -hmm. 
So because of this, we have problems. And the Spotify thing is, it's, it's that problem. It's, there's, there's, no, there's no tangible musical content anymore. Okay? And the movie business got ahead of it. They were smart and they set up things like Netflix and Amazon Prime and Hulu and these kinds of things so that they can still monetize their medium. And we have not done that in the music, in the music business. And we don't have the laws that protect us the same as the films, the films do. And it's a really, really slippery slope. And it, yes, you have to, there's an argument that goes both ways. If I, if I get a song played on the radio, I make X amount of money for every time that song plays. Mm -hmm. If I get a song playing on, on Spotify, I have a fraction of that amount of money per play. Mm -hmm. I mean, I mean a very, very small fraction. I don't want to say fractions because I don't know them. So I don't want to right. speak erroneously, right. but it's, it's, it's literally 0 0.00 before you see a 0, 0.00 something of a penny per, per stream. Right. Now the argument the other way is when you're listening to the radio, could be a million or two million people listening to the radio. If you're driving around, driving down the street here in LA listening to Kiss FM, there might be several million people listening to that at the same time. So of course you're going to make money. But when you're listening to Spotify, only you are listening to Spotify. Right. And that's the argument. Right. Right. So my thing is. No, I don't. I don't believe it's equitable. I, I, I have very, very little music on Spotify. Um, look, I'm not the big guy. I'm the little guy. And, and it's inconsequential. My stand on anything, my stand on, on, uh, listen, I don't, I don't proselytize to other musicians to take their stuff off of Spotify. And I just don't, I, I'm not that guy. I, I I'm very, um, I have friends that disagree with me politically and disagree with me in um, societal problems and things like that. And I respect that they have a different opinion. I'm not, I'm not one of these like publicly shaming, you're not my friend anymore. Right. No, I, I think it's ridiculous. I really, I think it's ridiculous. I really do. Um, so if you want to put your music on Spotify and you think it's good for you, then go for it. I don't think it's the right fit for me. So I just don't. What would be the, the solution? What could the, uh, what, what would be the solution to make things more equitable for artists now? And do you think that that will happen at some point or is it over? <laughs> I don't think it'll happen because I'm cynical. Mm -hmm. um, I think it starts with the artist. It starts with me. And I'll tell you how it starts with me. I worked for an artist for 10 years. I was the regular guitarist of this specific artist for 10 years. And in 10 years, I made the same amount of money as I did from the first day I started working with that person till the 10 years when I stopped working with that person. Each show I did, I made the same amount of money. Rent went up, gas prices went up, electricity went up, water went up, everything in life went up. My salary did not. And I had this mentality, I'm, I'm lucky to have this regular steady gig because if I bitch and moan about it, this next guy right here who has a guitar, he's ready to work for the money. Right. So 
because I know that I can think, hey, I'm the best goddamn guitar player there is. Nobody can touch me with a guitar. But even if that's true, even if it's true that I am the best guitar player, which I don't believe for a minute I am, but let's just say it's true. Any gig that I might get is only requiring 20 or 30% of my ability, which means that somebody who's 80% worse than I am can still do the gig I'm doing. <laughs> you understand? Uh, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> so having said that, it starts with the artist because I believe what's going to happen is this. We're going to be opening up soon. And some of us are still op are opening up now at, at um, you know, restricted capacities. Mm -hmm. So I can see Joe Schmo uh, nightclub owners saying, hey, I want the band to come in, but you have to take a huge pay cut because I'm only able to sell 20% occupancy. Right. Okay. Meanwhile, he's raised his prices by 50%. And he probably only has one employee now. Mm -hmm. And when it goes back to normal, do you think he's going to bring the prices back down? Oh, hell no. Right. But do you think he's going to say, I'm bringing my prices back up and I'm going to give you the money that you were making two years ago before the pandemic? Hmm. No. Nope. He's not. Mm -mm. So my, my call is out to musicians right now look, we've gone a year and we've not played. And for some reason, somehow we've all been able to survive, whether it's been because of family or friends or EDD or PUA or grants or whatever it might be. My, listen, I'm, I went to a deep, deep, dark depression this last year that I didn't know I was capable of being in. Cause I'm always, I don't want to say I'm a positive guy because I'm, I'm a very even tempered, you know, middle of the road kind of guy. And I got to a deep, dark place for sure. And I didn't realize because I do a, a considerable amount of songwriting and, and, and a more than considerable amount of, of studio session work. Mm -hmm. But I didn't realize how important being on a stage was to me until this past year, how that's really my lifeblood. That's really the thing that's important to me. And, and I have had to be strong and stick to my value of what I know I'm worth and turn down gigs from people who say, look, I know I, I have to give you less money because I, I'm, I want an assurance that, that, because like I said, how many restaurants have you been to where they've raised their prices? They've all raised their prices, right? So why can't I raise my price? Yeah. Why, why, why do I have to take a smaller <laughs> price? My thing is that musicians don't value themselves enough. They have this mentality. And I think it comes from our parents and all of our family of, um, you know, when are you going to get a real, artist. right, that starving artist thing, and uh, when are you going to get a real job? And I'll tell you, the kids I grew up with that had rich parents and were super talented mm -hmm. didn't go anywhere in life, mm. musically speaking. Right, musically they weren't speaking, hungry enough. They weren't hungry. And I had, I was like, no, 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 I need to, I need to earn money here you were 13 years old working the sunset strip i was 13 years old working sunset strip i didn't even like, I, I didn't even fathom that i'd get paid for it i just didn't I, I i remember it's a very funny story we we my, my buddy craig who's still a very dear friend of mine he was the drummer he's the very kind of go-getter mm -hmm. you know and um he 
he said, you know, we, we had, re we basically had this schedule. It was Monday, Tuesday, Thursday after school, those three days a week, Monday, Tuesday, Thursday. Mm -hmm. And then we had a floating day, Saturday or Sunday, depending on what my little league schedule was. <laughs> yes. Got to fit yeah. baseball in. Gotta exactly. <laughs> so we had written a bunch of tunes and listen, band practice was fun and we would have friends come and hang out. We would practice in the garage. It was my dad's garage and, and everybody, we, we rotated around the different guys' garages until our, our, their parents got pissed because the cops came. <laughs> Sorry, you can't practice here anymore. And we ended up at my father's garage last. And when the police came to my house and my dad's house, um, and they said, you know, we're going to have to find you if this keeps going on because you're disturbing the peace and there's a, a live music ordinance and this and that. And my dad said, listen, if you've got nothing better to do than come here every day and write me a ticket because my kid's playing in a band in the garage, then keep writing the tickets and I'll keep paying them. Because you know what? They're not out in the streets, running around in the streets, doing graffiti right. and stealing from candy stores. And right. Doing a bunch of drugs or whatever. Right. They're, they're doing something productive. And I'm cool with it. If it costs me a little bit of money, so that then fine. So one day after we had a bunch of tunes written, the drummer says, we got to go get a gig. And I remember the other three or four of us in the band were just like, a gig? What, are you, what the fuck are you talking about a gig? What does that even mean a gig? I mean, we knew what he meant, but we didn't even, we didn't fathom that. Where do we play? We can play at the Troubadour. There's no age limit. So the two of us hopped on our bikes and we, we go to the Troubadour at like four o'clock in the afternoon after school one day. And we walk in and the club is open and we walk in and we're like, hello, hello. And nobody's in the place. And we go upstairs into the balcony and we see there's offices and we walk in there and there's a guy sitting behind a desk. And he goes, what do you kids want? And we said, we want to play here. And it's like one of those, uh, come on, kid, get out of here, you're bothering me. One of those things, you know? <laughs> we said, no, man, we got a band. It's called Frequency, and we want to rock here, you know? And he, and he says, you got a demo tape? And we looked at each other, what's a demo tape? He says, I need you to bring me a tape of your band. Oh, well, we can just put a tape recorder in the, in the garage. He says, no, no, you need to give me a professional tape. I need to here okay we'll be back with a tape we get we get on our bikes and we're driving home and we're talking i remember we're driving down doheny towards pico on our bicycles and uh i remember what are we going to do we, we got to find a studio we got to go to a recording studio we got to get our parents to pay for it so we all asked our parents to chip in for a recording studio and some of the parents said no and some of the parents said yes and we got the money together. We went into a recording studio in Glendale. We tracked everything live, just like we were at band practice. We didn't do any overdubs. We all just in a room together, playing together. And we brought that tape to the dude at Truidor. And he listened to it and he goes, how do I know this is you? I don't believe this is you. <laughs> Seriously. He said, I don't believe this is you. Who do you think it is? I don't know. Maybe it's your big brothers or something like that. I don't know who this is. I, I don't believe for one minute this is you kids. Well, how can we prove it to you? He said, where do you, re where do you rehearse? 
We said it in our base player, in our base player's garage. Well, where is that? We said it's on Pico Boulevard down by Doheny. So Wayne's World. Yes. So he says, all right, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to come and watch you rehearse to see. Cool. So he came to rehearsal and he saw us and he gave us a gig. And he calls us and he says, you know, I got like a Tuesday, May something or we said, no, dude, we want to play on a Saturday and we want to open for Rat or Cinderella or Poison or Wasp. You know, these were all local bands at the time. Yeah. They weren't famous bands. Right. We want to open for Rat. We want to open for Rat. We want to open for Poison, Cinderella. We want to open for one of those bands. And he starts laughing. He goes, man, you have to earn your way up to doing that. And I'm not giving you a, a, a slot on a Saturday night. Because all those bands on Fridays and Saturday nights have earned from playing here over months and months and months and, and feel and they've earned the right to have those slots. We said, dude, we can't play on a Tuesday night. It's a school night, bro. We can't have people here on a Tuesday night. He said, I'll tell you what, I'll give you a Sunday night on a three-day weekend. So we booked a Sunday night on a three-day weekend. Huh? And then he gave us these tickets, these Troubadour tickets. And he said, go get a rubber stamp with your band name, stamp the tickets and write in your time slot. He said, with these tickets, it's, it's normally $4 to come into the club. With this ticket, it's $2. And at the end of the night, we count up the tickets and you get a dollar for each ticket. People who come in and pay $4, we're only going to give you 85 cents of that $4 because that $4 gets spread between all the bands. Mm -hmm. So we, he said, how many tickets do you need? We said, just give us a couple thousand. <laughs> he said, this place only holds like 300 people or something like that. 300, 400 people, something like that. We said, just give us as many as you can. We had a, we had a, a big hefty lawn bag full of tickets. We divided them up between all the band members. We bought rubber stamps. We stamped these things. I gave them my little sister helped me. Go. We packed that freaking place, packed. He was so happy on a Sunday night at eight o'clock at night. It was packed. Packed. And at the end of the night, he came up and he handed me $480 or something like that. Now, here's how shrewd I was. I was 13 years old and I had my sister, who's only a year younger than me. I had her stand right by the front door and count every single ticket that came through because I thought they'd screw me. Wow. What, what business acumen you already had. Yeah. And I said, I said, Heather, I want you to sit here. I don't want to miss the show. I said, listen, once we start, you can come in and watch the show. But until we start, please sit here next to this ticket booth. Because when you walk right in the Troubadour, there's a ticket booth like right in front of you. I said, just watch how many people come in and just count how many tickets they get. Wow. And they didn't. They gave me a nice receipt, which I still have. I think I, it's in my store somewhere. Mm -hmm. I have the receipt from the Troubadour with the date and the amount of money on it and all that. And I divided that money up evenly between between the five of us in the band. I think we each made like uh, $80, $89 a piece or something like that. And uh, man, I just, I was like, I have arrived. I'm 13 and I know what the rest of my life's going to be. Wow. Yeah. And did you have at the time in, in your young minds, did you realize the, the, the legacy already of the Troubadour as being the place that Elton John first played when he came to the yes. States and Linda Ronstadt, Stone Ponies and the Eagles and all those people? 
I didn't know this. I didn't know it to that level of specificity, mm-hmm. but I, I I knew that it was a historic place. I mean, because I grew up in L.A. and, and yeah. you know, you just know it's a historic place. Um, I remember the guy's name was Mike, the guy that worked there. Mm-hmm. And I remember the guy that booked us. I remember him telling telling us that we're the youngest band that had ever played there. He said, I've had older, he says, I've had bands that that maybe they had like a 10 year old kid in the band, but it was a bunch of grownups. Right. He said, but as a, as an entire band, you guys are the, the youngest band that's ever played here. Wow. Yeah. So then I, what was I next remember, for you? After I, remember, that? I remember Doug Weston because it's, you know, it's Doug Weston's Troubadour. Yes. Yes. And I remember him still being there. There was upstairs in the, upstairs in the office space they had kind of two offices uh-huh. two separate office spaces and in one of those office spaces was a closet and the closet when you opened it up it was a deep closet so it was just the normal width of a door but but it was deep uh-huh. and Doug Weston slept in this closet in a sleeping bag I'll never forget that he was like this homeless guy that slept in the sleeping bag in a closet upstairs in the office wow yeah and it wasn't any bigger than the place where you first learned took your first guitar lessons at the guitar shop (laughs) right right i i i don't remember ever speaking to doug weston but i remember seeing him i remember him in that little that little hovel you know Mm -hmm. it was it was a very interesting time you know again our parents weren't helicopter parents right at all at all you know, I had a house key when I was in sixth grade. I had a house key, sixth grade. I have a fifteen-year-old nephew who I don't know if he knows how to get to the Beverly Center from his house, and it's a half a mile away. You know what I mean? He won't get a house key till he's twenty-one. <laughs> no, I, 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 I had a house key. I remember there was it was literally just if you're not home by dark, pick up the phone and call us so we know where right. you are. Mm-hmm. It was literally that was the rule. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, just was, so we know where you are. I That's had a bus all. pass. When, yeah. I was six, when I was in the sixth grade, I had a bus pass. Mm-hmm. Literally a bus pass that I would get on the public transportation and take right. the bus down Olympic Boulevard and Wilshire Boulevard to the beach. Westwood, we'd go hang. Back in those days, Westwood was the place to be. Westwood Village. But we'd go up to Hollywood and see all the, we'd like to go to the rock stores and on Hollywood Boulevard where they sold all the leather with studs and all that kind mm-hmm. of stuff. And you know, we could buy butterfly knives, you know, those knives that you open and twirl them around. Right, right. Yeah. We could mm-hmm. get those and and uh, yeah, I mean we had we had a, a a very liberated childhood. We really, really did. And the thing um, is, because of that, you as teenagers and as young adults could go into the world and you could you knew how to handle yourselves. Exactly. Whereas these kids who have the the helicopter parents. Right. What are they going to do when they run into something or somebody, you know, they're not going to know what to do. There were many times when you'd be out somewhere and you would be with your crew and you'd run into some other guys and a fight would happen. And one guy would get in a fight with one guy there and you had to be ready to back up your buddy. You know, if one guy gets in the fight, you have to, you have to jump in and help and help him out. If you can't break it up, you know what I mean? It was just right. You, you learn that, you, you learn that camaraderie, you learn that loyalty, you learn that, um, you learn that 
you know, the pain you feel from getting punched in the eye is nowhere near the pain you feel from being a pussy. Right. You know what I mean? And, and yeah. running away. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. You learn that. You, you, you learn it the hard way. You know what I mean? It, it's, uh, it was, it, I'm not, it was, it was a wonderful time. It was a time when we weren't all just afraid of everything. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it really just, I wish kids today could, could kind of live in that world still, you know? Yeah. You know, I, I, think I that nowadays, nowadays people will call the cops when they see a kid who's like 12, who's out by himself, just minding his own business, getting on with life. And they're all worried about him. And the kid's like, no, I told my parents I was going to go to this record store and right. know, what? Yeah. like the police have nothing better to do. Mm. You know, I mean, they could be out writing me tickets. <laughs> yeah. The thing is, is that, you know, fear is useful for one thing, which is getting you out of a really bad situation and, and making you think twice about things. It's not, a, it, 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 but now everybody's afraid of everything. I remember one night on Halloween, we were, we were, you know, it was really the place to be back in those days in the eighties on Halloween was Beverly Hills. Mm -hmm. And in Beverly Hills, we would go out wearing a big hefty bag, you know, like the big lawn and leaf bags. Right. Mm -hmm. And we would cut two holes in it for the arms and a yeah. hole for our head. Yeah. And we would wear a shower cap. Uh-huh. And some people would paint their faces so that they weren't recognized. But what we would do is we'd go to the market about a week or two before Halloween and we'd buy as many eggs as we could and we'd stick them in the crawl space under the house so they'd get really good and rotten. Uh. And then we'd go have egg wars in Beverly Hills. You'd have egg, literally you'd be walking down the street and anybody you saw that was the same age or size as you, you would throw eggs at them and you'd hide behind a hedge and they'd throw eggs back at you. It would literally be egg wars. It was all out egg wars, all right? So one night we're, we're egg warring and we threw eggs at the wrong guys. They just weren't, they were older than us. They were high school kids and they were big kids and they were pissed that us little middle schoolers were throwing eggs at them. And they started chasing us down the street and there were three of us and two of us were running really fast and we were very athletic. And the third guy was not, and they caught the third guy a couple blocks behind uh, where we were. And my friend that the, the one that was with us, that was, the one that was with me that was able to run and get away. He said, what do we do? What do we do? We got to go. Let's go. Call, let's go call our parents or call the police. I said, what are you talking about? They caught him. They caught him. What do we do? I said, we got to go back. What do you mean we got to go back? Comrades. I said, we got to go back. Are you kidding me? We can't leave him alone there. He's with three guys that are bigger than us. We have to go back there and help him. So we went back. And when we got back there, those three guys that were much bigger than us, they might have been 15, 16, 17 years old, and we were 13. They were so impressed that we came back to, to help our friend that all they did was my friend that they had caught was wearing a bandana around his head. They made him take his bandana and throw it on the ground and step on it. That was all they did. And then they let us go and they started laughing and, and, and walked away. You know what I mean? Wow. But they were like, you guys are cool. You came back for your friend. 
See, that's honor. That's a yeah. code. And we that was respect. We used to have this saying, uh, I can't remember what it was. Uh, if you take on one bean, you got to fight the whole burrito. <laughs> and we were the burrito. You know what I mean? When my, when my friends and I went out, we were all the burrito. Now, don't get me wrong. We, were, we weren't violent right, at all. We were nice, middle-class <laughs> white kids that didn't have a care in the world. We weren't tough guys. We weren't anything like that. Right. You know, it, it was just, it was all about if I was the guy that got caught, I would want my friends to come back and help me right now. Sure. You know what I mean? So that's what I did. Even if it meant we all got beat up, at least we got beat up together, mm-hmm. you know? Um, but yeah, we were all, we were all, you know, we got in trouble, but we got in harmless trouble. Wow. You know, we, the kind of trouble we got in was like a neighbor calling the cops on band practice and I threw a lemon through her window, you know, that kind of stuff, you yeah, know, yeah. we were hurting people and, right. and spray painting walls and doing stupid shit like that. We were just having fun. We were, we were young boys having fun. Right. Yeah. Now, nowadays horrendous things happen mass shootings or whatnot and craziness oh, that never happened in the no. we were kids in the 70s and 80s that stuff was like third yeah. world stuff yeah yeah you're right you're right it's scary so then when um when did you start uh, uh session playing and touring and all that so the session playing i really started doing in my early 20s, I met a guy, well, first of all, when I was about 16 years old, I had another band. And uh, real quickly, back to that first day when we went to the recording studio with my first band, Frequency, and I walked into the recording studio, and I walked into the control room, and I saw the big console with, with the knobs and the buttons and the switches, and, and I sat in the guy's chair, and I looked at him and I literally demanded, I said, I want to know what every one of these knobs and switches and buttons and levers, I want to know what they all do. I was just blown away by it all. So I said to my father when I was 15 or 16 that I wanted to buy, you could buy these portable four track machines, mm-hmm. Tascam, Fostex, they made them. And you, what it would do is you would take a cassette tape and you put the cassette tape in and you would you could record four tracks on there and i remember i went to a pawn shop in west hollywood and i bought some cheap microphones for like very little money i was giving guitar lessons at that time mm-hmm. so i was uh i had a little bit of money you know and uh I had, I had like maybe four or five students when i was like 15 or 16 and i went and bought some microphones and i remember getting this four track recorder and learning how to use it so I always had a, a kind of knowledge of how to record and EQing and game stacking and that kind of thing. And I learned the hard way, you know, I plug a guitar into the channel, it's going into the red and it's making distortion. So I bring it down and right. I, it all just seemed kind of logical to me. So when I'm in my early twenties, I meet a guy who I started a band with. Very, very talented guy. One of the most talented people I've ever met. He's kind of like the prince that never got discovered, this guy. He mm-hmm. plays a gajillion instruments and a phenomenal singer, phenomenal songwriter, an amazing producer. You know, all, he's, he's, he's got every talent there is to need. He's got it. And he was doing karaoke soundalikes. 
and he would hire me to play guitar on these. So I would have to hear a song you know, and, and match the tones as closely as I can. And we didn't have digital equipment then. We didn't have amp modelers and you know fractals and helixes and all the crazy stuff we have now that we had to use real amps. I had to take a, a Marshall and mic it right. And get, you know, we had to learn, we knew how to do these things. And I did it a lot. And that's how I learned how to work Pro Tools was this guy had one of the early Pro Tools rigs that they called them Mix Plus systems at the time. I think they were called Sound Tools even, mm. if I'm not mistaken. Oh, yeah. I think, and you would record a guitar track, I remember, and the waveform would be there. And then you had to wait several minutes for like it had to render. Uh-huh. It wasn't quick at all. It wasn't made for recording. It was made for if, God forbid, you have to edit something that's already recorded, then you can record it into this program. And then you can kind of edit it and it has to render. But it wasn't like it is now where it's real time. Right. It wasn't that way. But I remember he had all this external scuzzy acceleration and all this crazy stuff. And I, w- I would sit behind him in this too, because I would track everything being in the control room. Because to me, it was easier than having to talk in a mic and wear headphones in the other room. And then I could really crank the shit out of the amps to get the tone out. But I would watch him. I watched the things he was doing with the mouse and how he was treating waveforms and cutting them up and moving them and crossfading and and that's how I learned how to that's how I learned because I'm a, I'm a really good Pro Tools engineer now and I learned from all those years of, of doing session work with that guy and then he would recommend me for things and it went on you know it's just that, that's how anything works in this business is people recommend you and they recommend you and they recommend you and you have to be a, um you have to be a jack of all trades I had a my first tour was with a band called Hamilton Joe Frank and Reynolds you know them? I don't. I don't. They they had some hit songs in the seventies. Uh, baby, baby, fall in love. I know that. Right. That was there. Right? right. And they had. Uh, don't pull your love. So they, those were their hit songs. I do know them. <laughs> I didn't realize. Okay. So, <laughs> this is a this is a long story. The guy Dan Hamilton, who was the lead singer and guitarist, he's the Hamilton in Hamilton, Joe Frank and Reynolds. Uh-huh. He was kind of an uncle of mine. He wasn't related to me, but I have a godmother, a woman who introduced my parents to each other, and she has a sister and her husband. She, this, this sister, her name was Freddie. Freddie was amazing. Freddie David dated Elvis. She was incredible. So she married this guy, Dan. So I knew Dan since I was a little kid. And I knew he was like the rock star uncle. Mm-hmm. He's the one that came to see me at that first Troubadour show who told my parents, I don't know about this band, but Jay has got it, air quotes. Mm-hmm. You should encourage this. He's got the natural kind of ability. You know, he's got it. So he and I got to be very close. And when I was 16, 17, 18 years old, actually, he started hiring me to play in Hamilton, Joe Freaking Reynolds when they would do local shows. 
Then when I was 21, he took me on the road. And this changed my life. And I'll tell you how it changed my life. I probably wouldn't know you or a lot of the people I know today if it wasn't for him hiring me. Up until that point in my life, I had been playing in original bands on the Sunset Strip. It was the 80s. And uh, late 80s now. And I was really burnt out. I was 20, 21 years old, and I was burnt out. And most people aren't burnt out for another 20 years. But I was, at that young age, already burnt out because I had gone from my first band frequency to the band I was currently in and many bands in between. And there are bands where I was the principal songwriter. And I had to deal with a lot of shit. I was the guy who not only wrote the band, wrote the, wrote the music, I... I had to book rehearsals. I had to book shows. I was the band leader. And it was a kind of self-imposed role only because um, it's not that I'm a type A because I'm not. It's not because it's not that I'm a control freak because I'm definitely not. Um, it was just because I think I was the one who knew how to do it. And I was the guitar player. I wasn't expecting the bass player or the drummer to write songs. So I get a job. Dan Hamilton calls me and says, look, we're going to go to do like a, a week in Laughlin, Nevada and a week in Vegas. Great. He goes, I want you to come with us. Great. So he had messengered over to me a manila envelope with cassettes in it and sheet music and start learning the songs. We get out on the road. And at the end of the week, I had, first of all, I had a party. You know what I mean? Like that first week I had a party. Like it was, woohoo! I just have to show up 15 minutes before the show to tune my guitar and play on stage and then go out and party and get crazy every night after. And just, it was, I loved it. And then at the end of the week, he hands me an envelope full of cash. And I said to myself at that moment, I cannot believe I just had the most amazing week playing concerts, having so much fun and partying like crazy and meeting great looking women and all this kind of stuff. And all I had to do was show up and play my guitar. I didn't have to negotiate with club owners who then lied to me and didn't pay me the amount of money after the show that they said they were going to. I didn't have to uh, write songs. I didn't have to co-write songs with my drummer who wants to write songs because he can play three bar chords on an acoustic guitar. Uh, I don't have to deal with my bass player who is too drunk to learn how to play the stuff I'm writing. I don't have to worry about my singer who cares more about getting laid than writing his lyrics. I didn't have to worry about walking up and down that sunset strip and, and postering all the, all the lamp posts and everything with flyers and hang. I didn't have to worry about any of this crap that's burned me out. I just had to show up and play my guitar and collect cash at the end of the week. So that was a pivotal moment for me. Now, off, now at this age now, I look back and I wonder if I made the right decision or not. Who knows? No one, no one can say. Maybe I should have stuck with it. Maybe I'd be like a big, famous, multi-billionaire rock star now. Who knows? Who knows? Um, but... That was why I, I made the conscious decision that I'm going to do this and be a professional guitar player. I got to be able to play everything. Mm -hmm. 
I can't just play rock gigs. I got to be able to do R&B gigs. I got to be able to do funk gigs. I got to be able to do jazz gigs. I got to be able to do them all. You know, I got... I'm sorry, I was looking at your list, your touring list here, just a small selection. You've got Lauren Hill, Michael McDonald, Kev Moe, Sheila E., Seal, the Pointer Sisters. I mean, it's everybody in the kitchen sink. Yeah. Yeah. It's because I learned how to play all that music. I, I, you know, a lot of it wasn't on purpose. I'd like to say that I had the initiative to go out and, and buy Pointer Sisters records and buy Sly Stone records and all these things. A lot of it was my upbringing my dad loves music my dad in his car he had like four cassettes in his car he had boston mm -hmm. he had fleetwood he had fleetwood mac he had elo he had harold melvin in the blue notes he had the ohio players he had barry white mm. he had you know there was just a big and then my dad he, he was in the restaurant business and he had some small restaurants and the guys that worked in the kitchen for him always had different music am radio playing in the kitchen and stuff like that and i would listen to all that music that they it, it, like it's how i learned all the different styles was i grew up being in my dad's restaurants listening to the people that worked in the restaurants having the, you know the radio on in the kitchen and that's how i was it's how i learned marvin gay and stevie wonder and mm -hmm. and all that kind of stuff it's how i learned it all was just hearing it as a kid and then i went to music school of course but that was earlier because I, le I left high school when I was 16. I went to music school. That was Guitar Institute that you yeah, went Yeah, GIT, mm -hmm. which I don't know what it's like now. Um, it was a different kind of vibe when I went. Obviously, it was I was 16 when I went to music school. I took a proficiency test and left high school after my, after my sophomore year. It wasn't for me. Well, you knew. I mean, it seemed like right right from the get-go starting at eight years old you already knew what you wanted to do well the problem is this when i look back on decisions i've made and you know choices and actions i've taken and inaction the one thing that i really wish i could do if i went back is i really wish i didn't um believe my own press so to speak and by that, I mean, when I was 13 years old, I played in a band with, with a bunch of guys that were all my best, my best friends and are still very, very close friends of mine. And we were all at the same level. And within two years, by the time I was 15, I had gotten to a different level. Yeah. And 16 and 17, and I was, but yet I was still playing with those guys. Mm -hmm. Um, I didn't realize until I was in my 20s, oh, I don't, I don't need to play with my buddies from high school. I can like go meet other people that are at, at, at a different level. That's one thing. The other thing was when you're in a school, and I, and I went to a very large high school, and I was, if not, I was one of the better guitar players in my high school. I mean... If not the best guitar player, I don't know what that means, the best, because there was a guy named Brandon who was a great jazz player huh? and way better jazz player than I can ever be. And But I was a great rock player and he couldn't play rock. So I was one of the better guitar players in my high school. And I had a whole big group of friends. I always had lots of friends. I still have lots of friends. I'm very blessed to have so many great friends. But when you hear all your friends all the time saying, 
you know, Gore's going to be a big rock star. Gore's going to be a big famous rock star. You start to then not realize that you have to work for that goal. Mm. I feel like it's anointed upon me and I'm going to sit home and play my guitar and smoke pot all day. And David Geffen is going to knock on my door and, and just have a record contract in his hand. And that, day. Right. And that day never came. Mm. That day never came. And by the time the problem was in my teen years, when I was on the Sunset Strip doing rock band, my own original bands, the labels would say, you guys are too young. Call us when you're 18. And then by the time I was 18, well, now they want teenagers. Right. I was, I'm at that age group where that pivoted, you know, where it went like boy bands started boy coming bands. in and Britney Spears came in, like they wanted teenagers then. And when I was a teenager, we're, we're not, we can't sign record contracts with teenagers. We can't do that. You know, like, like Leif Garrett was a failed experiment. You know what I mean? Right, it was right, right. Yeah. It, right. Um, so that's, that's how I ended up being where I am. You know, when I met the, when I met the imposters who, you know, as Jordan and Morty mm-hmm. and, and Josh and Jordan and right. The way I met them was they had gotten a bass player. I had a friend named Paul who lived in my neighborhood. And Paul was a really good guitar player. And he's a guy I used to jam with a lot and I used to get in a lot of trouble with him too. You know, he was 14 years old and stealing his mom's car and going to the park and doing donuts on the grass at three in the morning. And we were, we, we were raising hell, you know what I mean? And Paul called me one day and he goes, you're not gonna believe it, man. I joined a band, these guys from uni high. I said, oh, cool. He goes, I'm the bass player. And I'm like, why would you be the bass player? Because he's a really good guitar player. I'm like, why would you? You know, my mentality at the time was like, I mean, why would you be a bass player when you're a guitar player? Right. right. <laughs> great songs. You saw, they're such a great band. Their songs are so great. And that's how I met Jordan, Morty, and, and, mm. and, and Zevon, and, mm-hmm. and Josh. And that's how I met those guys. And we were about 18 years old. And meeting them was really cool for me because uh they're very talented people and they were not doing music that was my thing and they weren't listening to music that was my thing right but because I liked them so much and I respected them so much I wanted to you know look of course I knew the Beatles and I loved the Beatles my dad was a huge Beatles fan Mm -hmm. my mother saw the Beatles at at the Hollywood Bowl you know I but I, I was able to respect the Beatles on a different level because of Morty and Jordan. I was able to respect Elvis Costello on a different level because of Morty and Jordan, you know, um, and them, I mean, they're just, they're just great. And they were doing something different. They were doing something that I never did at that time, which was, they had a great band that was about the songs. Mm-hmm. And when I look back now, look, I had the benefit of finding some VHS cassette, VHS tapes mm-hmm. of my Sunset Strip band with, from the time when I met the Imposters. And we did lots of gigs together because the local promoters found out that we all knew each other and would book us on shows together, even though our music was not the same at all. I was playing, I was playing like melodic metal music. I was playing... My band sounded like you had a little bit of Living Color, a little bit of Rat and Dawkins and some Van Halen, 
You know what I mean? It was like that kind of vibe. Those guys weren't like that at all. Those guys were, they were very um, teal. Uh, what are they called? Uh, they were very, like, just wrote great songs. They were very, you know, kind of Beatlesy, but they didn't sound yes. like they're trying to. They didn't sound like they're trying to be the Beatles. Mm -hmm. They were just writing songs, great songs with great lyrics, with amazing lyrics. Yeah. That most people can't understand anyways in a live concert setting, but they are brilliant lyrics. I've told Morty to this day, I think he's one of the most brilliant lyricists ever. And, um, you know, we were in a band all day sucker for, for many years together. I don't know if we're still in this band together. I mean, I'm assuming we are, we just aren't active. Well, I sure hope that you are because, you know, we were driving around the other day listening to all day sucker. And every time, every time this comes on, I'm like, why are these guys not on the radio? You know, I mean, that's a conversation. Song. That's that's an off the air conversation. Mm -hmm. But um, I love playing with those guys. I love playing in that band. Um, it's uh, it's the most kind of brotherhood kind of band I've ever been in. Um, and by that I mean, you know, all the bands I were I was in, I was the band leader, and so I was. I don't want to say I was the boss, but I'm talking about in my younger years. I, since even 30 years old, I don't think I've been in a single band where I was uh, the primary um, creative force of the band. I, I met people who, who I felt like my contribution was better uh, in an um in a, in a in a seasoning kind of a way mm -hmm. you know you 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 write you write i met a guy who i played with for many many years and off and on and he's a famous actor and he's an incredibly talented musician and nobody knows it nobody has any idea that this guy is so freaking talented his voice is unbelievable and he writes incredible songs and, but he doesn't quite get them done. Mm. He gets the song and he'll, and he'll present it to the band and it could be done, but then I, I can hear it and our bass player can hear it and we can go, look, let's change a couple of these chords. Let's add a measure of two, four here. Little musical tricks like that, that now make them from good songs to excellent songs. We add that seasoning, you know what I'm saying? Um, and I, and I love doing that. I do. I, it, what it is, is it's putting my session guitar hat on in a band situation. Because mm -hmm. you go into a recording studio and more often than not, you're handed a chord chart. And there's no part. So am I just going to sit here and strum? You know, if, if, a, if, a, if a piano player is going, if a piano player is going... I mean, does it make sense for me to do to do the same thing? Right. Or do I need to come up with a, you know? To do a part, you know what I'm saying? And um, I love that. I love I love doing parts. And, and you've also you've also got uh, you've done composing for TV, all kinds of like 90210 and ER and party of five and all that stuff. And how did, 
how did those that are uh, those are songs that I wrote and co-wrote that I was able to be lucky enough to get to music supervisors to have them placed on on the shows. Yeah, it's it's uh, so much just being in the right place at the right time. You know, it really is. It's it's luck timing. It really is. I mean, I know people out there that I know, I know guys that sit in their room for 10 hours a day and play their guitar and they're unbelievable players mm -hmm. and they never get a gig because you gotta, you gotta get out in the world. You gotta. That, those connections that happen and those doors right. that open and the windows that open, right. it has to be that because otherwise right. nothing happens and you're in, you're basically in an echo chamber. So when the time when I placed all those songs on those TV shows, I was running with a group of people that put me in an opportunity to get those kinds of songs placed. Mm -hmm. So again, it's, it was, it was timing and opportunity and luck. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a lot to be said. Listen, so much of what happens in this business is luck. It's being in the right place at the right time. It is absolute luck. The thing is that you have to be responsible enough to be able to back your shit up if and when that opportunity lands right in front of your face. You have to be prepared to meet that opportunity. Absolutely, absolutely. You really do, you have to be able to be prepared. And that's what the practicing is for. That's, you know, look, uh, I, I did my first big show last Saturday night since we all got shut down. Mm -hmm. And it's songs that I've played hundreds of times, hundreds of times. I know them like the back of my hand, but you know what? I called the band leader and I said, give me the set list. He gave me the set list. And I practiced that entire show minimum, at least 10 times before, before the show. Right here in the studio. I grabbed my guitar, I turned up my speakers and I stood up with my guitar on me and I ran through that show at least 10 times. Now, truth be told, I didn't need to do it a single time. I could have shown up at the gig and done it, and I probably would have been 95%, and the 5% that I screwed up, nobody would know. Mm -hmm. But I'm not that guy. And uh, I ran it 10 times. I remember I had seven, I had a week to run it, and I ran it few times in one day and then one time a day after that. So you have to be prepared for these opportunities. You do. Because you never know. Look, I met two of the most famous, two of the most famous television music composers, Snuffy Walden and Mike Post. I met them doing an opening gig with a piano player at the House of Blues where when I asked the piano player to give me his music, because he didn't want to do any rehearsals, can you send me the song so I can at least learn them and chart some things out? And No, nah, man, don't even worry about it. I'm going to play chords. You're going to sit right next to me. And you, you just play what you want to play. He goes, you'll see what keys I'm playing in and just noodle and just, okay, fine. It's your show, man. I met those two guys at that show. Any show is an important show. I'm friends with Snuffy Walden and Mike Post. I can pick them up. I can pick up a phone and call either one of those legends right now because when this guy called me and didn't want to work 
uh, at a level I wanted to work at. I didn't say, you know what, fuck you. Uh, this isn't how I work. I I'm a professional and I need you to give me the proper materials to do your show properly. I didn't say that to him. I said, okay. But because I practice so much and play so much, I have a bag of tricks that I can pull from when I'm sitting next to some guy I don't know, playing music I don't know, and be able to get through it, to then have Snuffy Walden walk up to the stage and introduce himself to me and tell me how much he loved my guitar play. Wow. Yeah. That's what the prep is for. Mm -hmm. I can't say that enough to younger people. That's what the prep is for. Mm -hmm. Really. So how did it feel for you to be on stage again after so long of being off? It literally felt like being let out of jail. It did. It felt like being let out of jail. Not that I know what being let out of jail feels like. Yeah. At, le at least not as an adult. I don't know that feeling. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I will say that it was, it was, it was awesome. It felt, I mean, I literally remember, I remember one point about happy to show, I just closed my eyes and I was playing a guitar solo and I had, and I, and I realized that I had the, a big smile on my face. So I was just eyes closed, like looking straight up with a big smile, just playing my guitar. It was, it's like, yeah, that's home for me. You know, every, every minute of, I mean, you could probably ask every musician the same thing. Every minute I'm not on stage, it's just like struggling to get through the time until I get back on stage, mm. you know? Well, and the good news is, is that there's gonna be more and more of those moments when you're gonna be on stage and you're gonna be home and you're gonna have that feeling more and more as things open up. Yeah, we got to stand our ground on these things because I know people are already coming to me asking to, I can't pay you full amount. Dude, you doubled your prices. What are you talking about? Mm -hmm. You know, every restaurant I go eat on, there's a taco place I love to go. Their tacos were $4. Now they're $6. Mm -hmm. That's a 50% price increase. Yeah. You can look at it and go, it's only $2. Yeah, it's only $2, but it's a 50% increase. Right, right. You know? pay your musicians exactly yeah right wow. and it just goes to our self-worth because yeah okay fine i can hire uh i can just put the radio on in the background if i can't have live music you know and it's again musicians we should be getting paid for that too and we are but it's like nothing it's nothing and music <laughs> is so crucial for 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 human beings i really believe that it brings people together um it creates memories for people it's it's memory recall for people i mean i i think a lot of people underestimate the power of it i think that nobody i shouldn't say nobody a lot of people do not realize the effect that music has on their day every day what are you doing when you're driving to work every morning and you're sitting in traffic? You're listening to music. Because why? Because it's making you less stressed. Yeah. yeah. And then when you come home from work and you're stressed from work, you're listening to music. When you break up with your spouse, you're listening to music. Every time you hear a song on the radio, you identify with those lyrics because, oh my God, that's what happened with me and this person. And Yes, it's so important. Try to go see a movie that doesn't have music on it. Right. 
try to get through, you know, all those stories about talking to people who've, who've had horrible jobs in their youth. And they said, they'd say, well, at least we had music. Right, right. <laughs> at least it's I true. could play my music. It's true, you can't, I mean, seriously, you don't realize, as I've scored a, I've scored a few films, you know, small indie films. Mm -hmm. But when I watch these films, I'm just like, God, these are terrible. But they're not terrible. Because if you watch any great movie and you and as soon as you hear music, you pay attention because the music is telling you what you're supposed to be feeling. Right. You know what I'm saying? If you see a bludgeoned, bloody body laying on the ground, but you hear then you know, oh, this is supposed to be like mysterious right. and funny. And but but if you hear a different kind of music. You're going to be like scared or you're right. going to be sad. The music is telling you how to feel, not the visual. The right. music is telling you. When you're watching Lord of the Rings, as an example, you've got Howard Shore there in your ears. Right. Telling you what's happening, the pace of things. Something right. scary is about to happen. You know, big epic moment. And these, these things are done with very close collaboration between the composer and the director. Mm -hmm. You know, it isn't like, here's the movie, and then here's the breakdown of the cues, and we need 13 seconds from here to there, and eight seconds from there to there, and we have a long cue, it's a minute and 15. It isn't like that. They have extensive meetings, mm -hmm. and they go through exactly what kind of vibe. Mm -hmm. We'd like it to be kind of quieter right here, and then for two seconds, and then back down here, quiet again. You know what I mean? It's all close collaboration and it's a, it's an absolute art form. I remember seeing some footage actually speaking of Lord of the Rings and it was Peter Jackson and Howard Shore with their orchestra and they're playing right. the film on the screen and they're taking right. it just beat by beat and right. you know, working it out and collaborating throughout the whole thing. And it was an amazing, amazing thing to watch. You know, I did a movie about two years ago a short film it wasn't a short film it was a feature late film but it was a small budget film it was one of those films that went straight to netflix mm -hmm. and i got hired to do the music for it and and they just and basically i had one meeting with the director and they had temporary music but they couldn't use the temporary music because they didn't own the licensing for it so i sat with him and he went through each each cue and i had a you know paper and legal pads and I'm writing down you know sympathy numbers time code numbers and all this stuff okay so we really like this temp music but we can't use it so do something like this that that was a lot of the directions I got mm -hmm. so when I got everything done and then you know this this scene is supposed to be like he's walking into a nightclub it's supposed to be like you know whatever the mood they wanted of it and I would write down adjectives so the guy comes the, the producer and the director come to my studio and they sit down and I play them all the cues and I can tell they hate everything. And the guy calls me back and he says, uh, listen, man, we just don't think you, we just don't think you hit the mark on the stuff and we're going to find another person and this and that. Um, we'd like you to refund half the money. Mm. I said, it doesn't work that way. I said, these are the first drafts that you've heard. 
the way it works is that you you let me redo the music. You sit here with me and we work in collaboration together and we do this music together. You didn't want to do it. Mm. No, you're not the right guy. <laughs> they had, what the problem is, is they have demoitis. I don't know if you heard this term before. <laughs> demoitis, you know, you, you know what it is just by the term. Uh-huh. You get so used to hearing the rough mix and the temporaries of things that, that so I ended up seeing the movie when it came out a couple of years later, a year later, whatever. And the music that they put in there was nothing like what I did. It was nothing like the temp music they wanted, that mm. they wanted me to duplicate. Yeah. So you can't make everybody happy. Right. You know, I didn't, I didn't go and crawl into a little ball and start crying. Oh my God, I'm no good at this. I'm no good at this. I'm, I'm terrible. I, I can't score movies. I have to stick to being a guitar player. And, you know, uh, like anything, I'll get better at it, but I'm not supposed to know exactly what you have in your mind. You're supposed to be, like you said, you're supposed to be doing this here with me. Mm -hmm. Right. So. Wow. Yeah. There it is. So what are you, what are you working on now, Jay? Do you have a, something in your, in the pot that you're cooking at the moment? What I am working on is I met, I'm working on, I'm working on coaching courses. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm working on coaching courses for young musicians. Basically it's not guitar lessons. Mm -hmm. There's a million guys on YouTube, girls, guys, people on, on YouTube. Um, with whom you can take lessons. I'm working on a coaching course for professional musicians or want to be aspiring professional musicians. It's things like how to put a proper rig together for a certain artist, proper tour bus etiquette, proper recording studio etiquette, traveling etiquette, you know, all the things you need to learn to be part of, of, of a professional traveling band mm -hmm. and all that it's just i'm putting all that stuff together. that's that's my next thing it's going to be my coaching courses i'm going to do there's a real need for it the nobody there's nobody around to teach me that stuff when right. i came up if you ride the bus well you'll be asked back exactly and, and and people put so much emphasis on but i'm such a great bassist i'm such a great drummer they're never going to find another drummer like me it goes back to what i said earlier you're using what, 20% of your drumming ability on this gig? So you don't think they could find somebody that's 80% worse than you are that can still do yeah. the gig? Who isn't an asshole? Who isn't an asshole? You have to, look, we've all been fired from gigs, <laughs> myself included. We've all been fired from gigs. I got fired from a gig because uh, we were promised we work in a room together. And then they had the band sharing rooms. And then they said, it'll only be two months. And then everybody's going to get their rooms. And three months later, we're still rooming. And I was making me stink about it. And guess who got fired? Mm. Right. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I wasn't wrong. Right. All the other guys in the band knew I wasn't wrong. But I, I got fired. Right. They all yeah. felt the same way. But you got the you got the act. Because I didn't keep my mouth shut. I was, I'm, of, I'm of the mind of, you say something, you do it. And you said you're going to give us all our own hotel rooms, and now you didn't do it. So I've lost my respect for you. Mm -hmm. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. When I know you're bringing in a quarter million dollars in revenue every time we do a show, you won't. 
Pony spend up. another another thousand or so dollars for five hotel rooms. Right. You know what I mean? Right. It's, it doesn't make it, it doesn't correlate in my in my brain. It doesn't work with me. So I didn't think they'd fire me. I wasn't being an asshole about it. I wasn't right. walking going, when are we getting our what I wasn't being that guy. I was like, no, you by the way, are we gonna get a room soon? You yeah. told us you know, I was being nice about it, but yeah, and they did tell you that they would do that, and then they didn't, so. Right. They did that. They told us that we did have a band meeting about it. Um, and then after that, I was the only one that made a stink about it. You know, and I always had a room with this guy. He was, he was a young guy, and he was a slob, and he came, came back to the room drunk every single night. And it just, you know, it was I'm not that guy. I don't drink. I don't do drugs. I'm not, you know, it's. I don't care if you do it. I don't, but I, I like, I don't want to have to stay in a room. I just don't want a room with it. Right. Exactly. <laughs> do what you want to do. But um, so that's what the coaching course is. And I've been writing a lot of music with a guy I met. So the coaching course thing came from, I have a friend, a dear friend who's a great singer, very, very professional singer. She sings on all the big pop records and Disney movies and all that stuff. She did a, a workshop, a, a pop singers workshop. I called her and I said, can I come down to your workshop? I want to watch what you do because I want to see how you do it because I want to do that. Yeah. And I want to see how you run, run the workshop. Sure, no problem. So when I'm there, I met this really cool, I met this guy. I didn't really meet him that day, but I heard his voice and I really liked his voice. So I called my friend and I said, the guy who was there, his name was Kevin. Can I have his number? She gave me his number. And I reached out to him, and this is literally March of last year. Pandemic starting to hit. We're getting locked down. And I called this guy, and I said, look, I, I don't know if you saw me, but I was at that vocal workshop, and I was kind of sitting in the corner, you know, minding my own business, so I didn't get in the way of the workshop. And he goes, yeah, I remember you were there. You're a friend of Wendy's. I said, yeah. I said, I write a lot of songs. I have a full studio at home, but I like to collaborate with singers because I don't, I don't really do lyric and melody. I, I do, I write the songs. So I would like to like write songs and I'll track the songs out and I'll send them to you and you can write lyric and melody to them. He goes, that sounds great. I would love to do that. He goes, and I can record at home. I've got a Pro Tools rig too. Me and this guy got like 13 songs in the can already. Like done, written, mixed, mastered. And we're, we've got uh, three more in the fire right now. And I really, really enjoy, and I've, and I've never really met him in person. Other than that day. Yeah. But I've never met him in person. He wow. lives here in LA somewhere. We do everything via email. Uh-huh. And we've got a lot of great songs. We've got songs that could be like pop country songs. We've got stuff that sounds like Phil Collins would do it. Sting would do it. Mm -hmm. You know, like adult, adult contemporary kind of stuff, yeah. you know? Um, so, you know, we're just getting that to licensing people and it's a numbers game. It's like I said, it's a numbers game. It's luck. It's who, you know, it's all that, but that kept me busy in these last month, mm -hmm. these last year mm -hmm. is doing that. And do you feel that maybe in, in that as much of, as much as the lockdown has been an inconvenience and annoying and, and infuriating in many ways, do you think that there certainly has been a little bit of an upside in that you've had this concentrated time whereby you didn't really have any choice but to work in your studio and, and make something and make something happen. 
that that's exactly what is very well put you had all that shit you've been wanting to do you could do it you have no excuse that now it's been a year and you have no excuse if you still have shit that you need to do because mm -hmm. you had a year to do the shit and i had the year to do the shit i wanted to do i went through all my i have hard drives in the studio that have bits and pieces you know uh there's there's this whole thing going around now i'm a big van halen fan mm -hmm. eddie van halen died yes. now all the van halen fans now are drooling because they're praying and hoping that his son and his brother are going to go into the library the vast van halen library and pull those two inch tapes and start releasing all the unreleased shit just like when Prince died, yep. it's the same same thing. David Bowie, yeah. I I too have this vast amount of half finished songs, and that's what I used this for. I went through the hard drives. I deleted shit that I was like, you know what, this is crap. I don't know why I saved this. I'm not going to work on this ever again. And I deleted stuff, and then I put and I started working on the new songs. Now, keep in mind, I probably shouldn't say this because we live in a cancel society now cancel culture they call it right mm -hmm. but i was not hiding in my house for a year right you know i i went out and did what i wanted and went where i wanted and if somebody didn't like it I, look i wore my mask around other people because i don't want to scare other people sure you know what i mean whether i believe it's bullshit or not is not relevant right what's relevant is we live in a society and we have to care about each other and if i'm walking into a a, a business establishment they want me to put the mask on. I put the mask on. I don't make a stink about it. I put it on. Yeah, it's their rules anyway. It's their business. Exactly. exactly. Yeah, it's their thing. It's no different than going to somebody's house and they say, please take your shoes off when you come in my house. It's no different. Mm -hmm. No different at all. It's not taking your rights away, asking somebody <laughs> to put a mask on when they walk into your store. But I'm not staying home. I'm going right. out. Yes. I'm going to restaurants. If I have to eat outside, fine. If I have to take it to go, fine. I go eat in the park. You know, I, 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 other than not being able to perform, not much change, and not being able to see my friends because most most of them didn't want to go out. But I had that I had that small group of people that kind of felt like me, and we would go and meet in the park and bring bring our beach chairs with us, and we would sit far away from each other. We would sit six ten feet away from each other. We yeah. weren't hugging and shaking hands and all yeah. that, but we weren't so afraid that we wouldn't leave our house. Right. You know? So that kept, that kept me sane. I respect those who, who want to be paranoid about it. That's fine. If that's, if, if you want to believe that, that's okay. I, I, I respect you and I'm not going to give you shit and lecture you on why you should want to go outside and how there's nothing wrong with the world because that's not my place. That's right. I've always been a big believer in, hey, look, do what's right for you. Exactly. Exactly. Do what's right for you. Exactly right. As long as it's not hurting anybody else, right. do what's right for you. And if somebody invites me to their house, they're going to get the disclosure. Look, I want you to know I'm, I'm going out. I'm not, you know, I told my, my dad wanted me to come over to the house. I said, listen, dad, I just want you to know I haven't been staying home. I'm going out. I do things, I see people. So maybe it's not so safe I come to see you, mm -hmm. if, you know, if you're worried. So I will say that uh, nothing's happened. Like I said, I've traveled the world in this last year mm -hmm. using the minimum of caution, 
many airplanes, restaurants, beaches, shopping malls, cigar lounges, you know, Ubers, and I caught nothing. And it, when it was a raging, raging pandemic, and I caught nothing. I don't know that I'm so lucky. I think uh, my wife was with me. She caught nothing. I, I don't think we're lucky. I think that we were precautious. We used precaution when we were supposed to. Mm -hmm. And um, and then there's a little bit of, uh, I don't know, luck. I don't know. I don't know. Luck meeting preparedness. And, you know, the good news is, is that things are opening up little by little. And uh, we are going to get through this. Well, you know what's funny to me is the people who, as soon as the government, by the way, are lying, cheating, stealing government, okay? And I'm not even talking about our federal government, but they're included, okay? Our local government as well. They lie to us all the time. They steal our tax money and say it's going to fix roads, and they give it to pensions for you know whatever mm -hmm. teachers or union members whatever i don't even know or it's going to go to schools and it never does right 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 no your your tax is going to go to school two percent of going to schools the other 98 percent is going to the people that paid to get you elected you know all the lying so when they tell us there's a pandemic and we have to lock ourselves up and uh we go oh my god we have to do this we have to listen to everything they say because they never lie to us but now they're saying it's safe to go outside and those same people are saying, no, 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 no. I'm not listening to the government. You were listening to the government when they told you to stay home. But now that they say you can go outside, now you don't want to listen to them. It's so funny. And again, I don't, I'm not teasing people. I'm not, I'm not hating. I'm, I'm just. It's an observation. Stupid. The human have, brain is a strange creature. It's I, strange have plenty, I have plenty of dear friends that are still not wanting to leave the house. And you know what? I don't care. I love them still. They're my friends still. If that's what makes them feel good and feel safe and sane, good for them. I'm not going to pressure them and say, dude, you're being a wimp. Go outside. No, I'm not. Right. No. Yeah. That's like, that's, that's another, that's kind of bullying in a way. You know what I mean? I'm not going to, absolutely. Yeah. I'm not that like, do what you got to do when you're ready to come out. I'm happy to hit, happy to see you. Mm-hmm. I got my vaccines. I'm not worried. Yeah. You know? Well, and, you know, one of the things that's been a blessing about all this for me is that I started this podcast last year and I've been talking to people via Zoom and uh, mm -hmm. great making connections and catching up with people I haven't talked to in a long time. And that's been a gift. Well, I bought this. I bought. <laughs> I wish I bought that Zoom stock a year ago. <laughs> I know. Nobody knew what Zoom was until a year and a half ago. Or a year I ago. never knew what it was. I, yeah. I didn't know what it was. I knew what it was through work, but but certainly I've made I've I've made a lot of use of it in the last year. Yeah. But I, it's I, you know, I got stuff coming up and uh it's it's slowly, like you said, it's slowly returning. I've got some stuff on the road in at the end of May. And uh, going to Mexico for a week to uh, do some shows out there. Great. I can't so, wait to hear this, uh, the stuff that you got in the can when it comes out, whenever that is. Well, we're not necessarily releasing it. Um, 
we're just we're just sending it to music supervisors and, and mm -hmm. licensing places like that. I mean, I can send it to you. Mm -hmm. um, it's uh, it's real good. I'm, I'm real proud of it. I'm real proud of it because as I've gotten older, you know, like if you were to talk to our mutual friends, the Mortys and the Jordans and those people about about who I was when we first met, I was strictly the wannabe guitar hero. I mean, that's it. That's who I was. You know, the music that I wrote in the bands that I was a part of was very about the guitar. It had to have interesting guitar riffs. It had to be, you know, had to be something that was constantly stimulating me as a player. Right. Had to be a guitar palooza. Right. Right. <laughs> And so I, I could play you some riffs that I wrote when I was 18 years old and you would be like, how do you write a melody to that? You know what I'm saying? Mm. And when I, when I hear the stuff I'm writing now and I, and I, and I think of that, that 30 years of growth, because you know what? I got to a place many, many, many years ago when it didn't matter how much faster I could play. You know, it stopped mattering. And I know that some of those guys still think of me as that guy. Mm -hmm. You know, Jay's the, the shredder guy. That's fun. They won't think they won't think of me as that guy. That's fun. I'm not that guy. There you could find literally one million guitar players on on YouTube right now who will shred circles around me. Without a doubt. Shred circles around me. But um I like that. I like playing. I like that I have chops. I like that I can use chops. But what I love about this music that I've been doing with this guy, Kevin, is it's so, it, it shows so much growth in me as a songwriter, mm -hmm. as well as a producer. And because I mixed everything in the studio and I never thought of myself as being a good mixer. Mm -hmm. And I got online because we had a year to do nothing. And I took tons of mixing courses with the best, the Chris Lord Algies and the Clear Mountains and the Tom Lord Al and the Tom, all those guys, you know, they all have videos on YouTube of them showing you something. They do. They all do. Pick a legend, put him in YouTube. He's there going, this is how I like to get a snare sound. Mm -hmm. This is how I like to this is how I stack my reverbs to get to get a big kick drum sound. And you learn from it. And I learn like crazy with boom, you know? And I hear these songs that I, that I mix and I'm just like, wow, these, I can't believe I mixed these. Like these are, you know, sounds like a, a mixing person. It, 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 sounds it, like a professional did this. Because <laughs> I never did my own mixing ever. Mm -hmm. I would track all, I've done two records, two Jay Gore records. Mm -hmm both of which I tracked entirely in my, in my own studio, but did not mix. I sent them to Julian Chan, who produced and mixed my records for me and contributed as a songwriter on some stuff as well. Mm -hmm. Because I was a firm believer in not mixing your own music. Now, I still kind of believe this because these songs that I mixed are not, I don't think of them as my music. They're not Jay Gore songs. They're collaborations with a guy named Kevin Fisher that we're going to use to license. So 
that's why I'm not, the ego's not there. I don't have to worry about, oh, the guitar part needs to be a little louder. No, I'm thinking like, <laughs> what, how does this song sound best? You'd be shocked. I'll, I'll track the songs and I'll track, I might put 12, 14, 15 guitar tracks in there. And then when I go to start the mix, I start deleting shit. Mm -hmm. That guitar part can go, that guitar part can go, that one can go. Like, they're not making the song better and they're making the mix more difficult. Right. So now it's like, bare, it's down to what it should be. Right, taking it down to the essentials. Right. The essentials are what part of the song is making you feel something. Mm -hmm. Is it the lyric? Is it the melody? Is it this beautiful uh, keyboard part that I played? What, what is it? You know, mm -hmm. every song is different. So you're that guy, and you're also the guy who can teach him how to ride the bus well. It's very important. It's very important, you know, because there was a guy once who is. We we're on the on the road. We we're in the middle of the country somewhere, and he was our he was our front of house guy. So for people who don't know what that means, he was the guy that ran the sound during the show. Mm -hmm. And this 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 tour didn't have a big budget. Where lots of times the crew are on a bus and and the musicians are on a different bus. So everybody was on one bus and this guy wouldn't stop just talking all the time. Nice guy, he wasn't saying offensive things or anything like that, just liked to talk a lot, as I can do. I mean, I can definitely be a verbose person. So we decided that every time this guy got up to go to the bathroom on the bus, we would tell the bus driver and the bus driver would hit the brakes, then hit the gas, then hit the brakes, then hit the gas. Then hit the gas then <laughs> so <laughs> he'd go in the bathroom and the and the bus driver would like change lanes and then hit the gas and hit the brakes you hear him in the bathroom oh hey man hey uh, and he'd, he'd pee all over himself and peed all over the and we no dude you gotta clean that man nobody else is gonna go in there and clean that you know it was it was it was razzing you know what i mean i mean nowadays that person will probably sue you for sexual harassment or something you know, I mean, we're in such a hypercritical, sensitive world now, you know, but, you know, it was just, yeah, that's the kind of thing that might happen to you if you don't have proper bus etiquette. <laughs> uh, well, I think that's a good, a good place to leave it, Jay. Okay, cool. Thank you so much. This has been so yeah. great. Yeah, thanks for thinking of me. I had a good time. And that was the fabulous Jay Gore. Wow, multi-talented guy, fabulous human being, and it was a privilege to have him on the show today. Special treat for you, my listeners. We are going to close the show today with a track from last year from Jay's collaborative project called The Quarantine Project off of Volume 1, music by various artists, and all proceeds benefit nurses' charities. This track is called Isolation. I hope you enjoy. Take good care of yourselves. Take good care of each other. And I will see you on the other side. Thanks for listening.